This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You and host of the podcast, Transformative Principle. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Blaine, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts on the topics of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, untethering from technology. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. We are pleased to announce that the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. All right. Our guest today is Sini Ninkovich. He is better known as the Untethered Guy. He's a Berkeley MBA and Silicon Valley professional turned digital wellness guru. After a lifelong struggle with digital dependency, Sini quit his job at Apple to live in a van and untether from tech. Along the way, he learned that the key to inner harmony wasn't found in removing tech, but in redefining his relationship with it. The tools he discovered for himself were so transformative that sharing them with the world has become his personal mission. After releasing his book, Untethered, Sini started traveling globally as a speaker and digital wellness educator. In his engaging talks, he teaches our tech dilemma. In his engaging talks, he teaches our tech dilemma and shares a long-term future where we overcome distraction and truly embrace our devices without becoming tethered to them. 
Sini, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here with you today. <laughs> well, that is what we like to hear. It um, is interesting because we have a lot of guests on the podcast who talk about their journey. You may be one of the few whose story actually was a journey. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'd be curious to have you fill us in on what you went through and how it shaped your thinking. Totally. Why well, I, I probably had a kind of unique journey from very early childhood on because I was born in former Yugoslavia, a country that no longer exists. And so the experience of uh, leaving a country during war and, and coming to Austria as a refugee is, is already kind of unique. And it made me realize how important it is to like fit into culture and learn new languages and constantly evolve with new experiences as a human being. And that has always been kind of my guiding motto. I always wanted to see new things and experience new things. And so when I was six years old, I came to Austria as a refugee. I didn't know how to speak German. I didn't have any friends there. And I had to go to kindergarten um, without ability to communicate with another child. And so that was an interesting experience of really digging deep into language and culture and figuring out how to adapt to this, to this new surrounding. And then about six years later, at the age of 12, I got my first personal computer. And that's where this kind of uh, addictive or dependent relationship with my devices started. I started pretty early on playing multiplayer games, had my own clans, was really, really deep in it. I think at some point I probably played more games than I went to school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really realize it back then as a child because it was all fun and games. But later as an adult, when I was still playing games in my early 20s, my roommates back then actually pointed out to me that there was something wrong because instead of going for a drink with them and socializing after work, I went into my room to play games. And so it wasn't until the age of 24 where that became super, super obvious to me. I made a pact with myself at 24 to not play games that held for about eight years until my early 30s. And then a few years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to a mobile game. So it was an iPad game. And I thought to myself, eight years later, I'm a grown adult. I've been working at all these amazing companies. I figured it out. And it took me about a week to get back to 10 hours per day of gaming. Wow. Just one week. Wow. Right? And <laughs> two weeks crazy. later, I had to stop because it was not possible to sustain a lifestyle like that. And what I figured out is that games are no better today than where they were 10 years ago. But what they're better at is keeping us engaged and keeping us in the environment, spending as much time as possible in them. Yeah, that is super insightful. And I, uh, like you, got addicted to games and loved playing them and spent lots of time playing them. And uh, I have three brothers who are pretty close in age to me, and we all spent a lot of time playing. And if we weren't playing, we were watching one of our brothers play that game also. Wow. And so the amount of time that we spent doing that was, was just intense. And it took me, um, I don't think I was quite 24. I think it was a little bit before I was 24 to realize that I didn't want to define my life that way. Um, and that I wanted to, to have a healthy relationship with it. And I love playing games and I still do, but I now know that I can't spend that much time playing games 
And the, the time when I really realized that I was doing it too much was when I would close my eyes at night and I would see parts of the game. Um, yeah. as I, but you were as, in the zone, man. You're I know <laughs> that that was the key to me. That was my wake up moment. Was there something similar to you? Can you go back to when you were 24 and what was it that made you say, this is a problem? Yeah. So I, I remember in my early teens, basically every other night I fell asleep, either building StarCraft worlds in my head or, uh-huh. or playing through different races and trying to figure out how to combat them. That was that was a pretty common experience for me. And it was actually enjoyable at some point in, in time. But what it also did for me is I, I actually only started dreaming, meaning consciously being aware of my dreams a couple years ago, because I thought that games might have filled that role in, in my head for a really long time. Um, at the age of 24, what happened to me, I had a very short stint in my life where I went back to Croatia to work there to get to know my culture a little bit better. And uh, so I worked for a huge uh, company there. It was it was a food processing company. It had nothing to do with tech or anything that I spent the rest of my life doing, but it was six months of really engaging deep with the culture. And I had two roommates back then who were very social people. And I had my uh, my own room and I was playing games every evening after work. And they just wanted to hang out and be humans with each other. And I did not have that experience. I, I always felt like after school or after work, I come home and I play my games. And that's kind of the experience of life. Um, and they kind of introduced me back to what it means to socialize with other people, to get to know them, to ask insightful questions, um, to generate deeper friendships. And so it really felt to me that I needed to be a young adult before I was able to make these uh, relationships happen. And um, it was there was one specific moment where I, I rushed out of the room and I was so angry because my hero died much earlier than I was hoping him to die. And <laughs> and they they were just offering me a drink and telling me to just sit down, relax and have a chat instead of going back and being angry and maybe even throwing my keyboard around or something yeah. stupid like that. <laughs> well, this, I, I have to say, this is really fascinating listening to the two of you because I, my experience goes back a little bit deeper <laughs> into all of this. And the experience that I had was, was in college, we actually put in a game room off of the cafeteria for the debate team to raise money. A disturbing portion of which was actually my coinage going into the machines. <laughs> but the thing that probably made a difference on that, uh, unlike the experience you guys are describing, is that obviously you couldn't take those devices to your room. Mm-hmm. And so there was that physical cabinet piece that it enabled some separation. Now, I'm not going to say that my GPA couldn't have been a bit higher if those games weren't there. But I think the fact that we do have these things in our room, Sini, makes it that much more addictive potentially for yeah. people. And and I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on that. But then I'd also like to hear what it was that led you to write Untethered, because I think that that's such a powerful idea for people. Mm-hmm. So. It was about two and a half years ago, um, about in 2019, where I had the first idea of writing this book. And to be honest, the first idea didn't even come necessarily because I was strongly thinking about what I should be doing in life. At this point in 2019, I was working for Apple. Um, I was there for the past two and a half years. I 
mostly enjoyed my time there, but I also felt burnout. I was in a program management role that, that was focused on introducing new products every six months. And so there was this very stressful cycle that I was constantly mm-hmm. in. And so I knew I had to leave my job, but I had no idea what I would be doing afterwards. And so I did what every Silicon Valley person would do. I hired a coach and I went to meditations and and tried to really figure it out with my mind. And it wasn't until I joined a silent meditation retreat in 2019, a Vipassana 10-day retreat. You can't speak with anybody for 10 days. Uh, There's no physical contact. The only voice that you hear is basically your own inner voice, right? You meditate for about 11 or 12 hours every single day. Wake up is at 4.30 in the morning. So it's, it's quite an intense experience. And by day three, my inner voice became so loud because nobody else was talking that my inner voice was just telling me what to do next. And it, it told me that I had to do three things in life, which first one was learn a new language, which initially thought I was Spanish, but it turned out to be coding. So I spent uh, three months in a coding boot camp learning how to speak to machines. And then it told me that I needed to write a book about us and our relationship with machines. And so I spent another one and a half years working on that. And then it told me that I had to combine those two to create a business and to really help people untether from their devices. And that's actually what we're talking today. And at the same, in the same period of time, I also uh, encountered a huge financial loss. I was one of those people who spent a lot of time, time on Robinhood. And as we know, Robinhood is a, a really well gamified app, meaning they're using all these insights over the past two decades from, from games and they're putting it into the financial industry, which there are a lot of scary stories that, that follow from that. Like, for example, uh, they, I know this one story of a 18 year old who unfortunately killed himself after the Robin Hood app told him that he owns half a million dollars to a company, which 24 hours later, they sent him a support email saying that was a mistake out there, right? So uh, the, the consequences of gamifying finances are dire. And unfortunately, those stories happen. So I lost over $100,000 playing games on Robin Hood. Right, And it made me realize that probably a lot of other people, not only in the financial industry, but other industries as well, will suffer from us gamifying technology away. See, I I think of that as more hunger gamification than Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the more benign kind. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, in episode 99, we talked about gamification in the schools. and, And in a couple other episodes, we've talked about that also. And what we're essentially doing by introducing, I mean, kids already like games and then we bring it into their learning. And then now you're saying we bring it into the financial aspect of our life. And it it seems like it could be a really dangerous thing to do. And technology makes the gamification so easy. And I, I, what I appreciate is the idea of having a healthy relationship with the technology, which is something that Fred and I talk about all the time that if you have that healthy relationship, then it, it changes things. So how do you, how do you help people see how to have a healthy relationship with technology? Absolutely. Well, I I think for me personally, the, the smartphone changed everything because for the first time we had a device that was actually with us at all times before that we were, as you said, Fred, we were able to bring our devices into our homes. That was a huge step but now we're actually tethered to them at all times because the smartphone is in our pockets. So, and, and we can see that like 
2017, the average American spent 10 and a half hours connected to media. 2018, it was 11 and a half hours. 2019, it's 12 and a half hours. And last year, it was 13 and a half hours. So every year, we're just adding an hour connected to media. So that makes it pretty obvious that there is some kind of tethered relationship that we're in. The, the main mindset upgrade that I'm describing in my book is the, the idea that what if our smartphone is the first true relationship that we have with technology. And um, we were trying to wait for this robot to come out, to start speaking to us and to have this human relationship. But what if we didn't have to go there? What if the smartphone was actually that? And what would that mean for how we approach working with it? For example, when we grow up, we learn how to have a romantic relationship with our partners. We learn to have better relationship with our parents and even our siblings but it takes time. Like our first romantic relationship is typically not the greatest one for most people. We learn how to wake up next to somebody and not be stressed out, or we just learn how to interact with them in healthy ways. And the same thing is happening to us right now with a smartphone. We we're using it for a good decade at this point, And we're in this toxic relationship where we're not appreciating it as a partner. But what has happened is over the past decade, our partner has become a 10 ultra-connected, beautiful, smart, and amazing other. And we are like a five or a six. And so all the device that you see out there talks about how do you downgrade your device to make it a five or six so you can be in relationship with it, whether that's grayscale mode or turning on off notifications or getting rid of certain apps. It's all about downgrading your device. Now, in my book, the idea is what would it mean to become a 10? So we can be with a 10 and use the amazing functionality the device provides to us without going dumb phone, without buying a phone that is just a five or a six. That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't really thought of it in those particular terms, but it's 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 an interesting spin on the whole thing. It does seem to me that, not to coin a phrase, but you're really putting your finger on something with respect to the transition that occurred with the smartphone. Um, one of the things I wrote about some years ago in The Naked Employee was the idea that employers had to grapple with the fact that people were employees were taking a possessive approach to their devices because windows came along and allowed people to customize their computers. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now you've got a personal investment in how your computer looked. And I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be all kinds of wallpapers you could download for windows and Absolutely. all the rest of it. And everybody's device was a little different, but what you're really highlighting, I think, which is important, is that these intensely customizable devices are now with us 24-7. You know, even when we're sleeping, they're probably within arm's length. And so I think that that does heighten the emotional connection, because yeah. that's really at the end of the day what we seek, right? Whether it's with a partner that we're trying to live with, or honestly, this thing with, you know, every hour of the day. Absolutely. And, and that emotional connection comes through in, in data as well. For example, 90% of Americans fear the thought of leaving their home, uh, their device, their smartphone at home when leaving their house. That's 90% of people who get anxious just thinking about that. And I'm one of them. We're all part of it, right? And, and uh, about one third of us 
walks around in the streets with our smartphones in our hands. Like we would hold a romantic partner. That's how we're holding our hands while we're walking through the streets. And that number halves um, is reduced by half when another person walks next to us. Right. So it is really this replacement that we have for another person in our life. That's really interesting. One one bit of information. I'm I'm not sure whether it's a, a topic you cover in your book, but the National Transportation Safety Board, um, in I think 2019, for the first time in two decades, added back in distracted walking as one of the kinds of accidents that they started collecting data about. Yeah, and um, it, there's absolutely no question. It's entirely due to the smartphone. That's fascinating. And scary, right? I mean, <laughs> of course, right. <laughs> so, which is why it's a, which is why it's a cyber trap. Yeah. So, an interesting thing is that I've I've noticed in my own use, and I I loved your analogy about being in a relationship with your device because what you were talking about was really the um, the the desire to like bring it down and make it more like a dumb phone, and and that's not really what you're suggesting. So, so what advice do you have to bring ourselves up to a 10 and don't go into everything, of course, cause you know, you want people to buy your book, of course, and we encourage sure. people to do that. There's a link to it in the show notes. So make sure you do. Uh, but what are some of the things we can do to elevate ourselves rather than try to bring our phone down to our level? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my book, I spend a lot of time analyzing the issue that we're in, but also going deeply into mindset upgrades that we have to go through as humans. Because I actually think this problem is more about upgrading ourselves than it is about downgrading the smartphone. Um, and there are a lot of people working, obviously, on the policy side of things, like my friend Tristan Harris with the Center for Humane Technology, um, who also brought out the social dilemma a year and a half ago or two years at this point. They're working on, on really high-level changes, policy changes to to uh, reduce the effects of algorithms. And, and that's very worthwhile doing. And at the same time, I think we have a responsibility to change on an individual basis as well. So the first mindset upgrade I've already described, if you start thinking about your life as being in a relationship with your smartphone, a lot of the everyday answers are very simple to, to uh, give an answer to. For example, should you use your smartphone in the bathroom? Well, would you bring your parent with you into the bathroom? Are you pooping next to your partner? Probably not. Those are not things you would do. So why do you do that to your smartphone? Or when you have that thought in the middle of the night, like what's the weather going to be tomorrow? Are you going to bother your parent and wake them up and let them guess? You wouldn't do that either. So why are you unlocking your smartphone, putting it out of flight mode, and then searching for those things in the middle of the night? Those answers or those questions become become easily answered when we think of it as a relationship. What you wouldn't do to another human, you shouldn't do to your phone. And so that becomes pretty simple. And I truly believe that if we put toxicity into our phones, toxicity will come back. Um, as we know with other people, we're the average of our closest five, 10 friends or so. Our smartphone is the average of its five or 10 most used applications. It's the same principle, right? So if those applications are toxic, what can we expect in toxic behaviors from our smartphone? So I think that's the biggest mindset change that we can go through because it makes it really easy to answer everyday questions. That's I, I like that characterization of the kind of um, personality, if you will, of your smartphone, of your mobile sure. device. Uh, one of the things we focus on quite a bit is 
figuring out ways to help both schools and parents work with kids, you know, and, and try to set us in a better course for the future. Because obviously when you've got kind of older folks like myself or now Jethro, since he's crossed a significant milestone, <laughs> um, you have people who may be a little bit more set in their ways, but the question really becomes, what do we do with a generation, Sini, that is growing up with this relationship? Yeah, absolutely. And and the statistics there are also fascinating. So um, Canada, for example, the, the state of Ontario, they have a, uh, a mental health survey that comes out every two years. They ask middle school children about their mental health. So between 2017 and 2019, I analyzed the data. And the, the questions that they ask are around physical health, mental health, depression, suicidal thoughts. And also they ask, how many hours are you spending uh, in front of screens? Right in between 2017 and 2019, the number of hours spent in front of the screen went up by 20%. And so did physic reported physical health issues, mental health issues, depression, and suicidal thoughts went up between 20 and 40% during the same time frame. Now, obviously, those are correlations, not causations, but it seems to me as if adding an hour to a teenager's life in front of their screen has a negative impact on their mental health. And that's Maybe not the screen as much as probably the content behind the screen that can be argued, um, but there is some kind of connection. So what I found in my data was really fascinating. Initially, I thought to myself, well, we're all human beings with a lot of willpower. Why don't we utilize our willpower to get better? And that's something that is often recommended online by saying uh, implement colors in your calendar and structure your days better. And that all drains willpower. And to me, willpower is, is kind of like the iPhone battery. By the end of the day, it's pretty empty. And I know when I come back home at 6 p.m., chances are I'm going to unlock my phone. I will have no willpower left to resist it. And then I'm on YouTube and then I'm scrolling, uh, doom scrolling on Facebook. I know these things will happen by the end of the day because I'm drained of willpower. So what can we do to not, not drain our willpower any more than it is already being drained every single day. Initially, I thought I can help myself, but that's not actually true. I think we humans are really bad at helping ourselves. But the good news is we're great at helping each other. So for example, only 8% of New Year's resolutions are followed through, are becoming reality. 8%, right? Only two-thirds of people take medication that they are recommended to take by their doctors but 90% of pet owners give their rec the recommended, recommended medication to their pets. So we're really, really great when it comes to taking care of others, but we're not that great when it comes to taking care of ourselves. So one of the main ideas in my book is the idea of helping each other with tech addiction, with tech dependency. For me personally, that looks, uh, looks like this. When I'm at home for five to six hours every day, I have a friend of mine come to my place and we co-work next to each other. I have a two desk setup, and they're sitting next to me and I make sure that they're doing their work and they make sure that I'm doing my work and I'm becoming the person that I want to become and they're becoming the person that they want to become. The alternative for me would be I'm alone at home. The smartphone is there. The iPad is there. Chances are I'm not going to be doing the things that I actually want my future self to have or to be. But when another person is there, 
I'm much more likely to do the right things. And, and that's also proven uh, scientifically through effects like the Hawthorne effect, which, which tells us that when another person uh, looks over us, we are much more likely to achieve the results that we are trying to achieve. So I think it's very similar with technology. I think we need to start helping each other to either get off our devices, if that's the goal, or to utilize them in ways that lead to the future selves that we desire. Zaini, I think that's a really, really smart insight for teachers and for parents in terms of some of the structures that they should put in place for kids to really inculcate the kinds of habits you want them to grow up with. Let me close though, or let's 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 wrap up our conversation, which has just been terrific, with with one question that really goes to your background a little bit, because mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right in terms of having people look at their willpower and look at their behaviors and, and starting there. But some of the things you've touched on, I think, reflect systemic issues with tech companies. And I'm going to just throw it out there that our buddies at Facebook slash Instagram slash Meta, which they just declared <laughs> today, they're going right. to call themselves. Um, and I have thoughts about that, Jethro, which we will launch into at some point. But, but Sini, here's, here's the specific question. Yes, we can put structures in place for our kids, but there's growing evidence that, as you alluded to, some of the content you know, particularly for teenage girls on something like Instagram is highly destructive. How do we get the tech companies to do a better job of helping us be our better selves? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great question. It's also a extremely complex question. People like Tristan Harris are much better at answering because they're actually working on these issues. And I well, think we'll Tristan have started- put, we'll, we'll have you put us in touch with them. We'd love Absolutely. to talk. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, Tristan, uh, I, I actually think Tristan started at the right point, which was awareness. Uh, the social dilemma blew up in a way that people probably never thought it would. It, it reached uh, over 100 million households. So it, I think awareness is, is the starting point for any major marketing campaign, any major change campaign, so to speak. And I think he's doing a great job. He's spending a lot of time in Washington right now trying to figure out what policies can be put in place. So I, I think that is in motion and it's happening. At the same time, what I'm seeing and, and what I saw at Apple when I was there is there is awareness that more time is not doesn't always mean more purchases and doesn't always mean more sustained purchases over a long period of time. For the customers to stay healthy for a long period of time, there is more and more incentive for tech companies to implement the right algorithms or to give us tools to monitor ourselves. I think Apple is doing a pretty decent job, um, even with this new uh, update right now, where it gives us a chance to put our devices in sleep mode, in focus mode. It tells us how much time we're spending with different apps. So. I think Apple is is attempting to do something, and if you if you think about it, what what other company on this planet provides us with information that makes us lose their, use their products less? That's a, I think a very rare step, and I appreciate Apple doing that for us. Um, but at the same time, there are incentives to do it, and I think they are becoming more and more obvious over time. I'm personally with my work super, super focused on helping the individual, helping the teenager, helping the adult implement new rituals in their life, implement strategies and upgrade themselves in a way where they can be in relationship with their smartphone 
independent on what policies are being introduced or how companies change. Because as an individual, we don't have much power to change them on a daily basis. But what we can change is how we behave towards these devices. Yeah, I think think that's really well said, Sini. Thank you. And I think also just to add to that, it's so important to do things independent of the companies, like you said, because it doesn't matter what they create if you already have that mindset when they create like with focus mode on on iOS 15 which i agree has been so helpful it's so strict that i've missed numerous phone calls and texts because it it just blocks everything out by default which that was the direction i was heading and so i was ready for it but not everybody was heading that way and that could be challenging for some uh but those things you know you have to have that own that own schema set up for yourself so that you can be successful. And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing this and remind everybody to check out your book untethered at the link in the show notes at cybertraps.com and definitely check it out and read it. And I noticed that it's on uh, Kindle unlimited. So if you have that, then it won't even cost you anything double bonus, right? Absolutely. And it's coming out as an audiobook in a couple of weeks. So for people who love to listen, excellent it's going to be out there read by you, Very I presume. Well um, only the first chapter is read by me. The rest, I have an amazing guy who sounds like a, a mid-30s Silicon Valley type, and I love his voice, so I really wanted him <laughs> <Great>. to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sini, as I said, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation, and we appreciate the work you're doing because it is squarely in line with what we're trying to do here on the podcast. So thank you. Absolutely. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, mental health for tech users, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll continue our conversations with our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones. Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review, and we'll see you for our live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. 
That's IXL.com slash B-E.